question was asked me if there are five components to the gospel. You know about uh, conviction of sin, repentance, these kinds of things. If a person is not baptized in water, not baptized in the Holy Ghost, are they saved? If you would attend the, um, what's the name of the church? Uh, I have to be careful because the name here in Northern Ireland won't be the same as back in Canada. United Pentecostal. You have those here? United Pentecostal. They would teach that you are not saved until you have been baptized in water and has to be in the name of Jesus. If you're baptized in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, it's no good. And unless you speak in tongues, you're not saved. They would go to that extreme. I, would, again, would not agree with that. If you are convicted and you cry out to God and you experience His regenerative power, then, of course, I would say that you are saved. If you're not baptized in the Holy Spirit, are you saved? Yes, but why are you not baptized in the Holy Spirit? You need. If you are not baptized in water, are you saved? I would say yes, but why are you not baptized in water? Because you need baptism of the Spirit for power, and you need baptism in water for the seal of witness on your own heart. You need these things. These things are an option. If you die without speaking in tongues, if you die without being baptized in water, would you go to heaven? Why does the question exist? Why are you not baptized in the Holy Spirit and why are you not baptized in water? Why does the question even exist? But if that is the case, then sure, I would say you were born again, but have you ever cheated yourself out of life? That's how I would respond to that. Have you ever cheated yourself out of life? Why does the question even exist? 1 Corinthians 14. Lord, give me grace because there's much to say. I trust this has been helpful so far, but I know there are particular questions that people would really like me to answer that we haven't got to yet. In best to understand what the scripture says about speaking in tongues, we will have to examine at length 1 Corinthians 14. This is where the main direct teaching is found in the Bible on the subject. Tongues are mentioned in an incidental manner in the book of Acts, but there are side issues to the story being told. Tongues is mentioned occasionally as a side issue the book of Acts is not to teach us about speaking in tongues as far as doctrine goes the best place is 1 Corinthians chapter 14 what drives the chapter of 1 Corinthians 14 is this and it's important to know that Paul and the Corinthians disagree with each other in the strongest of terms of what it means to be spiritual can I say that again? In order to understand this chapter, Paul and the Corinthians disagree with each other very strongly. A disagreement about what it means to be spiritual. They are miles apart in their understanding of what it is to be spiritual. 
What did the Corinthians believe? The Corinthians believed that the presence of charismatic phenomena, such as speaking in tongues, made them spiritual people. They believed the presence of charismatic phenomena made them spiritual people. Paul doesn't think they're very spiritual at all. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, he calls them carnal. Are you not yet carnal? They think they're spiritual. He says you're carnal. So they have plenty of gifts. They're enriched in all kind of utterance. They have plenty of manifestations. Fascinated with angels. But Paul says they are carnal. To them, the Corinthians, speaking in tongues was the sign of a heavenly experience. They are already identifying themselves with angels. Always oh, speak with the tongues of angels. They were fascinated. They assumed, and I can't get into this, this would have to be another study we would do on a study of 1 Corinthians, but just to whet your appetite. They had assumed that through the gift of tongues, they had already assumed angelic status. We're already like angels. Already like angels. And if you know the history of the last hundred years, the first pioneers of Pentecost a hundred years ago almost went down the same path. If you want to study it out and, and read their writings of a hundred years ago, they almost went down the same path. But the Corinthians thought they had assumed angelic status, which led to a pile of other abuses in the Corinthian church. While it is outside what I want to discuss today, it could be said that the Corinthians carried their supposed association with angels into a pile of false doctrines that eventually led them to deny the resurrection of the body, 1 Corinthians 15, because Angels don't have human bodies, so we don't need human bodies. They denied the resurrection of the body, which led to a pile of other abuses about marriage, especially when it came to sex within marriage. We don't need it because angels don't do it. So it was causing marriage problems. Or we don't have sex within marriage because the body is useless anyway. And it led to all sorts of abuses on this kind of stuff. But that would have to be another Saturday to discuss the errant doctrines of the Corinthians. But the gifts of the Spirit play into that system of thinking. Paul, uh, spirituality to Paul was entirely different. Let me give you Paul's definition of spirituality. His definition of spirituality and again I can't get into as deeply because this would require a seminar on its own of running through 1 Corinthians but to Paul to be a spiritual person means you live your life oriented towards the future resurrection of your body live your life oriented towards the future resurrection of the body I don't suppose the modern church today would even recognize that definition of spirituality. Let me repeat it. 
is to live your life oriented towards the resurrection of the body. That is why immediately after he challenges their false doctrine, understanding of spirituality in chapter 14, he immediately goes in chapter 15 to teach the right one, the resurrection of the body. Very important that we catch that. Are you living your life oriented towards the resurrection to come? Or do you even think about it? How many are on a journey but have no idea where you're going? How many go on holidays without ever creating a destination? How many just wander? If you, if you don't have a destination, you'll never arrive. We have a destination. Jesus is coming back. We have a resurrection. There is, the end of the story is glory. The end of the story is this body is going to be transformed. That's the end of the story. Sin will be non-existent at the appearing of Jesus. And I'm going to put on incorruption and immortality. I hope you're there with me. The end of the story is glory. And you live your entire life moving towards that destination. That's what it means to be spiritual. It is not the excitement of present charismata. Though we need present charismata, that in itself doesn't make you spiritual. You could be reveling in, in gifts of the Spirit and be a stupid idiot doing it. You really can. You can be a fool doing it. Not being very spiritual with spiritual gifts. It's having your life oriented towards the goal which is the return of Christ, the resurrection of your body. And your life is lived in that light. That's what it means to be spiritual. Alright? But that's not what the Corinthians think. They're just getting goosebumps over experiences. And Paul says, you're in error. Thank God for the goosebumps, but that's not what it means to be spiritual. Alright? Paul believed, and you, you, you've heard me say this, and I need to say this, and I need to say it again, and again, and again, and again, and again. Salvation is already, but not yet. Until you understand that, your eyes will be closed to the writings of Paul the Apostle. What do I mean by already, not yet? Well, the best I can come up with in our Western culture is... Are you engaged to be married, but not yet married? Now, if you are engaged to be married, but not yet married, are you single? How you answer that question will determine whether I will give you marriage counseling or not. <laughs> you, are not you are engaged, but you are not yet Married? Are you single? If you say, I am still single, don't get married because it's not going to last. You're going into that with a completely wrong attitude. You are not yet married, but the future has you under obligation. The promise of the future controls your present. That's what it means to be spiritual. The glory that shall be revealed is the factor that controls my present living. 
You follow what I'm saying? The present reality which is promised you controls your present behavior. That's what it means to live by hope. That's what it means to be spiritual. And this is Paul's vision. Already, but not yet. Not yet in the sense you don't have an incorruptible body, you don't have an immortal body, that you are subject to time, you are subject to space, but already because the Holy Spirit has brought the future to you. The gifts of healing is the resurrection body come early. The word of knowledge is the knowledge of the Lord will cover the earth like the waters cover the sea. It's come to you early. The gifts of the Spirit are you tasting the future realities. You have in part what shall be in full at that time. That's what the baptism of the Holy Spirit is all about. So according to Paul, living in the Spirit means your life is molded in the present by the future reality that the Holy Spirit lets you taste here and now. That's what it means to be spiritual. The Corinthians' mistake was these foretastes, the goosebumps that they had, their experiences, they're falling on the floor, they're shouting, they're hallelujah, they're speaking in tongues and all that. They thought that was what made them spiritual. Now church, there's nothing wrong with falling on the floor if the power of God knocks you over. Not a thing wrong. It's not dignified. Well, who said the Holy Ghost is dignified? Your culture might say it, but not your Bible. Did you catch that? Your culture might demand being dignified, but your Bible doesn't. It's not very dignified for Jesus to spit on you, is it? It's not very dignified for Jesus to rub mud in your eyes, either. It wasn't dignified for Jesus to be born in a barn. There's much in the Bible that's not dignified. And if you want to protect your dignity, it's your pride more than anything else that maybe needs to get offended to get you to some common sense and to get you into the things of the Spirit. The Holy Ghost doesn't always act in a dignified manner. Now, I'm not suggesting you can be undignified just for the sake of it. But I'm I'm saying, don't you dare confine the Holy Spirit into your definition of what is respectable and what isn't. Because he's not going to be confined. I'll never fall on the floor. You're the candidate that God's going to knock down then. I mean, it's just, you can't put God in a box. How did I get on that rabbit trail? Well, the Corinthians believe that's what made them spiritual, these experiences. Thank God for the experiences, but they themselves don't mean you are spiritual. You're spiritual when your life is governed by the future reality of the appearing of Jesus. Amen. But they were already identifying with angels, as we saw. Now, I'm going to make some statements here that need to be heard. Living in the Spirit does not mean moving out of trials. Living in the Spirit does not mean you don't experience weakness. What it does mean is victory in the midst of trial, not the absence of trial. 
It means power in the midst of weakness, not the absence of weakness. You'll only get to the point of no weakness when glory is revealed at his appearing. But in this world, you shall have tribulation. All right. Now, listen to the very important statement here. This is a word to Western mindset, if I ever heard one. For those of you who have little experience of other cultures, you may not realize how in the Western culture, how individualized you are. What do I mean by that? That means, tell me the names of the children of the people who live next door to you. Tell me who lives three houses down the street from you. Tell me the name, the grandchild of the person who lives across the street from you. Matter of fact, would you tell me the last name of the person sitting on the other side of the church from you? One of the things that I have discovered, and it's, it's, it's all over the world, but I tell you, I discovered it to the nth degree here in Northern Ireland. And that is this. You can sit in this church for 25 years. And there could be another couple that sat in the church for 25 years. And after 25 years of attending the same church, you don't even know each other's names. That's not church. That isn't even anywhere close to church. That's not being members one of another. That is some institution, but it's not church. How is that possible? But I have discovered in Northern Ireland, that's normal. You know what that makes? It makes church one of the loneliest places you could ever go to. I am craving for acceptance and fellowship and people to understand me. But I'm not going to find it in church. That is sad. That's not church. How did I get on that one? Oh, the idea is that we live individual lives. So prevalent in Western society. If I go to Africa, which I've done many times, if you go to Africa, come with me to a village in Africa. You know everybody in the village. As a matter of fact, if I see your child misbehave, I will thump him for you. And you will thank me for it. And if you see my grandchild misbehaving, you will drag him through the street by his ears. He's not even your grandchild. He's mine. Why? Because the whole village is a community, is a family. Your child is my child. Your child is my child. It is community 
It is family. It is one another. You are in each other's lives to the point you're just family with everybody. That's what the Spirit of God is supposed to do with us. The Holy Ghost coming upon us is to produce the family of God, the people of God, the community of God, the temple of the Holy Spirit, the body of Christ. But I have found in this culture all that stuff is theory and nobody hardly has ever into the reality of that thing. Your experience with the Spirit is so highly individualized that you don't relate to other people. That is wrong. It is thoroughly wrong. It is a sin that is bred deep into your culture. And it is a sinful element of your culture. Terribly much so. Horribly much so. Needs to be addressed. Needs to be reworked and taken out of your systems. We're in here to enjoy one another. Absolutely one another. Church is horrifically lonely. Terribly lonely. Awful lonely. Ought not to be. This is family. This is friends. This is community. This is one another. Members one of another. But you see, in the Corinthian church, part of the issue was there was no sense of one another responsibility. If you're going to catch 1 Corinthians 14, you've got to catch this. There's no sense of one another responsibility. Everything was highly individualized. My experience of the Spirit is for me. And when you came together in church services, it was all about me instead of one another. Now... You've got to catch that or you're going to miss so much of what's in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Because they were all about their personal experience rather than one another in the church service. Very, very important. Let me explain to you the concept of already, not yet, a little clearer to you. And the Corinthians didn't get it. The Corinthians' understanding of end times was like this. You're living in the present with the coming of the Holy Spirit with charismatic gifts. Especially speaking in tongues. They had arrived at the end. That was their definition. They didn't need the resurrection of the body. Who needed when you're already floating around like angels? Who needed the resurrection of the body when you had these powerful experiences of the Holy Ghost? And whew, it was powerful stuff. Thank God for the power. But they thought that was it. The end had arrived. And they didn't look for the coming of the Lord. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, until the appearing of Jesus, they didn't have that perspective. They had no hunger, no desire for the resurrection of the body. Didn't need it. They're already like angels because of their speaking in tongues. That was them. Paul says, you think you're spiritual. What a carnal bunch of people you are. Paul and the Corinthians don't see eye to eye on much. 
Well, what was Paul's view of end times? What was his understanding of salvation? Paul would see with the coming of the Holy Spirit that the end had not arrived. He would say the end has begun. Listen to the difference. Not that the end had arrived, but the end had begun. The first coming of Jesus, his death, burial, resurrection, and the outpoured Holy Spirit was the beginning of what the Bible calls the last days. To the Corinthians, it was the last day. No, he says it's the beginning of the last days. And when Jesus comes the second time, when he appears, the soon coming king, as Elam likes to say it, that's the last day. The last day is not the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. The last day is the beginning. The pouring out of the Spirit is the beginning of the last days. The coming of Jesus is the last day. And you as a New Testament church is in our between the two. We are between the first coming and the second coming of Jesus. And the work of the Holy Spirit is to get you to the last day. You need to walk in the Spirit, live in the Spirit, fruit of the Spirit, gifts of the Spirit. You need the whole working of the Holy Spirit. God, deliver us from any tradition so that we might be people of the Spirit. Because it's going to take the Spirit to get us to the last day. Not tradition, the Spirit. Well, only the Spirit will get you to the last day. May we be people of the Holy Ghost, full of the Spirit. But we live in between the two. But the Holy Spirit has already let me experience my future. I don't know what it's like to be resurrected, but I know a healing touch, which is the resurrection of the future being experienced now. You follow what I'm saying? And I live between the two. And so I live in this physical body and I live in this present world that has been judged, that is on its way out. It is passing away. It will totally pass away at the appearing of Jesus. It's in the process. And I find myself living in a world of weakness. But while I'm in this world of weakness, I have the power of the future already come to me in the gift of the Holy Ghost. And I can have power in the midst of weakness. Oh, I like it. Come on. Shout with me. I might get excited and run around the building. And I might, I might get spiritual like the Corinthians for a minute and just run. This is good stuff. This is exciting stuff. God has not left me an orphan. The Holy Ghost has brought the future into my heart already. And I'm alive and I am well. By the power of God. And in this world I have trial, but that's okay. I got the Holy Ghost. Hallelujah. Come on, shout with me, somebody. Paul's definition of the Spirit, of being spiritual, is you have the power of God now in the midst of weakness. Paul's definition of spirituality is you have the power to live righteously in the midst of sin. It's victory. The gifts of the Spirit have to be lived out with that context and with that understanding. Don't take the presence of the gifts of meaning you have arrived. 
They are the vehicle by which God will get you to the end. You haven't arrived, but they are the vehicle by which God will take you to the end. 1 Corinthians 14. Lord, help me. Can somebody put the clock back about four hours, please? Paul is dealing with a specific situation. In order to understand this, Paul is dealing with a specific situation where tongues are being abused. All right? This is not teaching about tongues. This is correcting an abuse about tongues. If they get out of it what you should, let's understand that he's bringing correction to abuse here. So his purpose is not in information for you and me. His purpose is correcting a situation. Um, for you and I, it's like this. Have you ever listen to somebody speaking on the phone and you're hearing what they're saying and you're going, what on earth is the person on the other end saying? Because it's getting hot. It's getting debated. They're shouting. They're lifting their voice. I will not. Yes, you will. No, I, I, I will not. I, and you're hearing all this strong stuff on one side of the phone and you have no other idea what's on the other side of the phone. Ever been in a situation like that? That's what is like reading First Corinthians 14. You are hearing Paul's strong remarks, but you don't have the advantage of hearing the Corinthians. And so you have to read through this carefully. But you know by the intensity of what Paul is saying, he is taking strong exception to their point of view. Strong exception. The central problem is their abuse of speaking in tongues. No, let me be more specific. Speaking in tongues without interpretation. That's the abuse that's happening. Speaking in tongues without interpretation. This accounts for everything that Paul has said about the gifts of the Spirit in chapters 12, 13, and now 14. Everything that Paul has said in chapter 12 and 13 is setting up the correction he's going to bring in chapter 14. Specifically, here's the problem. Specifically, the problem is this. Their corporate worship meetings. Their corporate worship meetings, their disorderliness of expression... Their fascination with one gift at the exclusion of all the other gifts and the unintelligibility of the whole thing when tongues are not being interpreted. Those are the problems he's correcting. What is it again? Their disorderliness of their corporate worship. Their fascination with one expression of the Spirit at the exclusion of all the others, and the unintelligibility of the tongues when they are not interpreted. Now, how do I keep myself back from preaching instead of sticking to my notes? Because if I was to look at Pentecostal churches today, would I say, for those churches that do express gifts of the Spirit, 
Why are you limited to tongues, interpretation of tongues, and prophecy? Why are you limited to that? Is there not diversity? Have you not read all the different kinds of manifestations? Have you not read in the scripture, God delivers all these gifts severally as he will? Does God only give tongues? Does he not give healing to anybody? Does he not give words of wisdom to people? Does he not give words of knowledge to people? Does he not give faith to some people? So why is every church service always got to be tongues? The exclusiveness centered in on one gift. You see, in modern history, Pentecost is tongues. God forbid that it should be that narrow. Yes, tongues is part of the Pentecostal movement, but so is discerning of spirits. So is the gift of faith. So is the word of wisdom. So is the word of knowledge. So is the working of miracles. Why aren't they evident in our church services? Why have we limited ourselves to one or two gifts? See, that's the very nature. Before 1 Corinthians 14, Paul does 1 Corinthians 12. And the first thing that he emphasizes is the Holy Spirit brings diversity. And you Corinthians are fascinated with one manifestation, tongues. You so elevated tongues that you can't see any other gift in operation. That is his first correction. The Holy Spirit brings diversity. Hallelujah. Back to my notes. Hey, that is in my notes. There it is, right there. <laughs> diversity. <laughs> diversity. But in 1 Corinthians 14, let me tell you some positive things, good things about tongues. Note these down. Note, note these things down. First of all, speaking in tongues is inspired by the Holy Spirit. Oh, I'm afraid to go out for prayer. What am I going to get? What if I get some demon or something? What Bible do you read? Luke 11. If you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Father, your Heavenly Father, give the Holy Spirit to those that ask Him? There is no ground for you to think you're going to get something bad or evil or false. If you ask for bread, your Father's not going to give you a stone. If you ask for a fish, He's not going to give you a scorpion. And that's your human Father's who have sin in their hearts. Your heavenly Father wants to give the Holy Spirit to those that ask Him. So, tongues are Spirit-given utterances. It comes from the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 12, 7, 1 Corinthians 12, 11, 1 Corinthians 14, 2. They're just listed as an activity of the Holy Spirit. Speaking in tongues is an activity of the Holy Spirit. Hallelujah. Let's get that into our consciousness. Speaking in tongues is an activity of the Holy Spirit. Contrary to the behavior of, and examples of some people, speaking in tongues is not spoken in the state of ecstasy or you're not out of control. Oh, I just couldn't help myself. Liar. Yes, you could. 
You might have a strong feeling, whatever, but if it's out of control, then you're just, you just need discipline. It's not in a state of ecstasy, as if you've got to arrive at this state of ecstasy and boom, then it comes. You're not out of control. Back in the early days, a hundred years ago, trying to lead people into the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Again, this happened in the apostolic church. Plead the blood. Plead the blood and plead the blood. And if you plead the blood enough, you'd speak in tongues. But you have to plead the blood quickly. I plead the blood, I plead the blood, I plead the blood, I plead the blood. Oh, I got it. Could you believe it? They did that. That was a way of getting people to speak in tongues by plead the blood rapidly and you soon get going. No, that was childish. But that is part of history. Tongues is not, you don't have to get to the state of ecstasy to do it. Okay? Tongues are unintelligible to you. When you speak in tongues, you're not going to understand what you're saying. Okay, you get that in chapter 14, verses 14 and 16. When you speak in tongues, you're not going to know what you're saying. Alright? First of all, and this is important, when you speak in tongues, you are speaking to God. I'm going to emphasize that because this might get a little controversial. But when you speak in tongues, you are talking to God. It's your ability to communicate with God. Where do you get that? Chapter 14, verse 2. Chapter 14, verses 14 and 15. Chapter 14, verse 28. When you are speaking in tongues, you are speaking to God. And another thing, according to chapter 14, verse 2, you are speaking mysteries to God. You're speaking mysteries to God. So we will try to work through all of that. According to chapter 12, verses 29 and 30, the issue that Paul is bringing forward to the Corinthian church is this. Is there only one manifestation of a gift that should happen in church services? Is there only one manifestation? You know, and he talks about, are there prophets, apostles, teachers, work of miracles, gifts of healing, speak in tongues, do all interpret? Chapter 14 and verse 1 implies this, that all spirit-filled believers may exercise the gift of prophecy. Any believer can push forward in God and exercise the gift of prophecy. Did you catch that? Any believer. However, usually in church services, we leave it to the same two or three or four individuals. The Bible teaches you can all do it. Amen. It's there. It's in your Bible. You may all. As a matter of fact, he says, I would rather that you prophesy. And in verse number 31 of chapter 14, he says that you may all prophesy. He says you may all prophesy. In other words, this prophecy is not going to be limited to just two or three specially anointed people. We now, by default, we let those two or three do it all the time. 
Well, that's hardly biblical. That's hardly, hardly uh, biblical. When he says back in chapter 12 and verse 30, do all speak in tongues, to follow through his argument here, it's a rhetorical question. He's not asking, may all speak in tongues, because the answer to that would be yes. But the question is, do all do this in every church service? The answer is no. It's not a question whether you should speak in tongues as evidence of being baptized in the Holy Ghost. It's not a question of the gift of tongues. It's a question in a, gift, in a church service, does everybody have to do everything? And the answer is all can speak in tongues, but will all speak in tongues in a church service? The answer is obviously no. 1 Corinthians 13 sets up the broader ethical context setting out a principle before we deal with tongues and the issue of uninterpreted, uninterpreted tongues, the issue is this, are you walking in love? We can't solve this problem if we aren't walking in love. Did you catch that? Because there's going to be many difficulties we as a church can work through and, and we'll, we'll come head to head and clash on all sorts of things. Because what's freedom to one is annoyance to somebody else. What's liberty to one is anathema to somebody else. What's being free to one person is undignified to another. In the body of Christ we have extremes. People on opposite poles on things. I want to dance. You say, no, you can't do that in church. You know... What's acceptable one is hated by another. Well, who's right? Who's going to win the debate? Romans 14 gives us the illustration. Romans 14, won't turn there, but Romans 14, some think you should eat meat, sacrificed idols, some think you never should, some think you should uh, have church on Saturday, some think it should be on Sunday, some think you can drink wine, some think you can't drink wine. On and on and on it goes. Who's right? Doctrinally, I'd be able to say who's right doctrinally. But the issue is not so much who's right doctrinally. The issue is who's got a big enough heart? Well, listen to me. Who's got a big enough heart to accept those in love who have opposing point of views without condemning them? Nothing like church life to bring this out. Maybe that's why we don't talk to each other. You know, I don't know. <laughs> the Corinthians had provided, prided themselves in wisdom, but they couldn't see the wisdom of a crucified Messiah. They prided themselves in knowledge, but they destroyed their brother with their knowledge. They had giftings, but those giftings were not guided by the principle of love. And Paul is going to bring this to their problem of speaking in tongues. One of the basic problems about your exhibition of speaking in tongues here is you're not guided by love in what you're doing here. You're not guided by love in what you're doing here. The first 25 verses of chapter 14, what Paul is going to argue for is that tongues without interpretation do not edify 
Here's the principle. You're not going to understand 1 Corinthians 14 unless you catch this. Only that which is understood edifies. This is an important principle. Only that which is understood edifies. If you have no idea what I'm talking about, I may be speaking the truth, but you're not helped any. If I came here using big scholastic words only found in university books for professors and doctors of the law, I might be telling the truth, but you're going to say, I haven't got a clue what you're talking about. You weren't helped. It's the same with speaking in tongues. If you don't understand what is said, there is no edification. Very simple point. The purpose of gathering together is not to heighten my spiritual, individual spirituality. The purpose in getting together is corporate edification. That needs to be written down and underlined. When we come together, the purpose is mutual edification, not self-edification. Self-edification is when I'm by myself. When we get together for church, it is mutual edification. So the first 25 verses of 1 Corinthians 14 says this. For mutual edification, there has to be understanding. Uninterpreted tongues bring no understanding and therefore are ineffective for edifying the church. Uninterrupted, uninterpreted. Maybe sometimes tongues should be interrupted. Uninterpreted tongues are of no edification. And then verses 26 to the rest of the chapter, there are some guidelines for how to ensure mutual edification. How to ensure it. Alright, with that understanding, Paul is going to open this chapter strongly emphasizing that prophecy is the preferred gift. Prophecy is the preferred gift. Then he will begin to explain about tongues and the interpretation of tongues. But to show the direction, Paul must first show the direction of these two gifts, tongues and prophecy. Let's go through it verse by verse. (laughs) Verse 1 of chapter 14. Follow after love. He says, whatever approach you take to the gifts of the Spirit, it's got to be in the context of love. Follow after love and desire, be zealous for, covet, yearn for spiritual gifts. I want you to note something. The onus is on you to seek to be used of God in spiritual gifts. Don't come to church passive. Don't come to church passive. If you didn't hear me, don't come to church passive. You come prepared to worship. You come prepared to pray. You come prepared to be a vessel through whom God can minister. Don't come passively. I can't emphasize that enough. You are responsible to seek God to be used by His Spirit. Be zealous. Desire, covet these things. But he says, I want to ask each and every one of you to seek prophecy. 
when it says in the King James, but rather that you prophesy. If you could read this in the Greek, very, 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 very much so you should seek prophecy over tongues. It is extremely emphatic in the Greek language. You are so fascinated with tongues, I would much prefer that you would rather, with everything within you, concentrate on prophecy and not tongues. Why? Because in verse number 2, he tells you why. We're to covet earnestly the best gifts. See, back in chapter 12, 31, covet earnestly the best gifts. You get to covet. There's something you do get to covet. You get to covet the best gifts. But what does he mean the best gift? Is one gift better than the other? No, the context here is the best gift for the occasion you find yourself in. If you're praying for the dead, it's best to have the working of miracles than speaking in tongues. You know? If you're dealing with somebody who's about to die, the best gift is not discerning the spirits. It's probably something else. The best gift for church services is prophecy. The best gift in church services is prophecy. Love should tell you that if you're walking in love. Now why is prophecy the better gift than tongues? Because in verse number 2, it spells out very clearly. When you are speaking in an unknown tongue, you are not. N-O-T, if you want to know how to spell it. Not. In the Greek, this is definitely not. In no way, shape, or form, a full and a direct negative. When you are speaking in tongues, you are not speaking to the church. You are not speaking to men. When you speak in tongues, you are addressing God. So when you speak in tongues, you're not talking to me. You're talking to God. Full stop, very strong in the Greek language here. Under no circumstances are you talking to me when you talk in tongues. You are speaking to God. I don't understand what you're saying when you speak in tongues. It says, how be it in the Spirit he's speaking mysteries. Well, what's the mystery? Probably... Mystery refers to things outside of your understanding. This is the wonderful thing about tongues. It moves you beyond the limitations of your human mind. You can worship God beyond the confines of your mind. You can worship God beyond the confines of your heart. It takes you into a realm beyond your abilities. You are speaking mysteries to God. I'll come back to that a little bit later. But you are expressing things to God that lie outside and beyond your understanding. You are able to make contact with God beyond your natural ability and comprehension. Who wouldn't want to speak in tongues? Who wouldn't want to speak in tongues? You're speaking mysteries to God.
Wonderful truth. Wonderful truth. Verse number 3. But he that prophesies, different gift of the Spirit, is speaking to men. Now listen carefully. When you speak in tongues, you are not speaking to men. When you prophesy, you are speaking to men. Catch the difference. So Paul lays these ground rules for understanding about tongues. When you pray in tongues, it is man to God. When it's prophecy, it's God to man. Did you catch the different directions? I need to emphasize it again because we can't see the obvious. You're going to find out what I mean in just a couple of minutes. You can't see the obvious. When it's tongues, it is man to God. It's the Spirit inspiring you. It's not you and your human ability, but the Holy Ghost inside of you causing you to communicate to God. It's not a human speaking. It's divinely inspired by the Spirit enabling you to communicate with God about mysteries, things beyond your, your limited comprehension. What a blessing. It helps you pray. Helps you worship. Well beyond human limitations. God, please pour out your Spirit on us. That's tongues. Prophecy is God speaking to the church. God speaking to men. And then it says in verse 3 that prophecy does three things, which I'll go over quickly. But it says you, you edify, you exhort, and you comfort. For the sake of time, I will come back to that. Now this, you're going to see three positive things in these verses about speaking in tongues. Let me tell you the three positive things you should take note of. One, you are, in, you, you are divinely enabled to talk to God. You are divinely enabled to talk to God. Hallelujah. Divinely enabled to talk to God. The second thing I've already mentioned, you're speaking mysteries. Things beyond your, your comprehension. Things beyond your, your ability. The other thing I want you to note is in verse number 4, is that when you speak in tongues, you yourself are edified. Remember what I said earlier. Of all the gifts of the Spirit, this is the only one for self-edification. All the others are for mutual edification. God has given you a gift by which you can be built up in your spirit. All ministry. A-L-L, if you want to know how to spell the word. All ministry has to flow out of your spirit. Is not asking God to bless our human endeavors. All ministry is to flow out of our spirit. My prayer is to flow in my spirit. My preaching is to flow out of my spirit. My teaching is to flow out of my spirit. My evangelism is to flow out of my spirit. All ministry is to flow out of my spirit. And God has given me a gift that builds up my spirit. Keeps me charged. 
keeps me alive, keeps me functioning, keeps me open to the things of the Holy Ghost. All ministry is to flow out of my spirit and God has graciously given me a gift to keep my spirit charged. It's called tongues. Who wouldn't want to speak in tongues? Who would refuse this? Why do you short-circuit yourself? Thank God for tongues. I hope you can see that I don't believe this is just an option that you may or may not choose to do in your life. This is the engine that drives your car. It's not the power steering, it's the engine. All ministry flows out of your spirit and God's given you a gift to keep that spirit charged. Hallelujah. I might get excited. You see, you have to understand, if you read chapter 14, verses 14 and 15, that God has means to bring you edification besides through the cortex of your human brain. God can speak to your spirit directly without speaking to your brain. Now, in my communication with you, I've got to appeal to your understanding. But God can directly appeal to you, direct to your spirit. Chapter 14, verses 14 and 15, God sometimes bypasses the brain. (laughs) Hallelujah. This definition of tongues, of speaking to God, is overwhelmingly confirmed in the book of Acts. How do I know? In Acts chapter 2, verses 4 to 11, what were they doing when they were speaking in tongues? If you turn back there, let's read. In Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, when they spoke in tongues, what were they doing? Were they speaking to men or to God? In Acts 2, 4 to 11, they all spoke in tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And you notice, if you get down to verse number 11, when those who understood the dialects that they were speaking, unknown to the Galileans, 120, but others there understood, what were they speaking? We do hear them speak in our dialects the wonderful works of God. It was worship. It was praise. It was mysteries about God. That's what they were doing when they were speaking in tongues. In chapter 10 of the book of Acts in the house of Cornelius, what were they doing when they spoke in tongues? In chapter 10, verses 44 to 46, it says, While Peter yet spoke these words, the Holy Ghost fell on all of them which heard the word. And think of the circumcision which believed were astonished as many as came with Peter, because that all the Gentiles also, can you believe it on Gentiles? On Gentiles, these unchurched heathens, these Gentiles who don't know Moses, they don't know the commandments, they don't know the Ten Commandments, they don't know what it means to be holy, these Gentiles, and God gave the Holy Spirit to them. How do they know? They heard them speak in tongues, and what were they doing when they were speaking in tongues? Magnifying God. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians. You are speaking to God mysteries. So, all three of these points, you're speaking to God, mysteries, God is cutting you something that brings edification. It would hardly discourage you from seeking the gift, would it? 
What it does, it should encourage you. It should cause you to press in to seek such a blessing. The language of Paul certainly encourages everyone to press into this matter for their own personal growth and benefit. But when it comes to church services, tongues is the wrong tool. Because tongues is personal edification. The purpose of getting together corporately is not personal edification, it's mutual edification. It's concern for you rather than concern for myself. Therefore, the right gift to bring to the service is prophecy. Church gatherings are not about your private life with the Lord. It's about mutual edification. Therefore, what we need is intelligence, not unintelligible tongues. That's what he's driving at. Now, the direction of prophecy is opposite to that of tongues. Tongues is what? Man supernaturally enabled to speak to God. Prophecy is God speaking to the church. The purpose of ed- prophecy, verse number 3, is edification. That means through the prophetic word, you should be strengthened, you should be built up, and you should be confirmed. This is how you can judge prophecy. Has it strengthened, built you up, and confirmed? If it doesn't do those things, then you can judge it as being off base. And you don't have to receive it. But edify means to strengthen, build, and confirm. In chapter 8 and verse 1, that's what Paul said. This is the goal of love, to edify. Exhortation means to encourage, to appeal to you, to entreat. God is going to be appealing to our hearts. God wants to motivate the church through the gift of prophecy. And the word comfort means bring consolation. Consolation. So the gift of prophecy is to strengthen, to build us, to confirm us, is to encourage us, to appeal to us, to entreat us. It is to bring comfort. That's the general purpose and motivation behind prophecy. If you want to see how that works out even better, just write down these, these verses. 1 Thessalonians 2 and verse 11 and Philippians 2 verse 1. 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 11, and Philippians 2, verse 1, because those same things is what Paul wanted to do with all his converts. He wanted to edify them, exhort them, and comfort them. And when you see his ministry as a father to the people, that's the same burden that goes behind uh, prophecy. Now, I'm not going to... It also says in verse 31 that you can all learn by prophecy. So there's some teaching. Chapter 14, verse 31. There's some learning that can happen through the prophetic gift as well. Um, Here's the thought that I'm going to have to conclude with for the day. It's going to make you think. Can I just leave you thinking? We'll have to come back to solve it another time. Verse 5, I would that you all spoke with tongues. Paul wants everybody to have that liberty. I would that you all spoke in tongues. But rather, here again, very, very much so, in church services, speak in tongues in your home private life, but in church services, it's prophecy of what you're after. Why? Because greater, more beneficial, 
more edification. Greater is the person that prophesies over the person that speaks with tongues unless there is an interpretation. Because without tongue, without the interpretation, the tongues are unintelligent and they will not bring any edification. The word rather is very strong. On the basis of this verse, do I dare do this? On the basis of this verse, we have the mistaken notion the mistaken notion that prophecy follows tongues. Someone will speak in tongues and then comes a prophecy, not an interpretation. What Paul is saying here is tongues does not edify like prophecy edifies unless they are interpreted. What Paul is not saying, and not is spelled N-O-T, what Paul is not saying that tongues and interpretation serves the same purpose as prophecy. If the interpretation sounds like a prophecy, why bother with the tongues in the first place? Who are you speaking to when you, when you speak in tongues? Now, let me ask you a question again. I'm setting you up here. Who are you speaking to when you speak in tongues? So if somebody interprets for me what you said, what would the interpretation sound like? You're speaking to God. So why does it sound like in Pentecostal tradition you're prophesying and God's speaking to the church? I opened the can of worms. I did it. Now it's out. I can't get the worms back in. <laughs> Listen carefully to me. You see, I come from Pentecostal experience of more than four decades. I have fellowship with all kinds of Pentecostal groups. I have been in Pentecostal groups where the interpretation is not a prophecy. The interpretation is prayer, worship, or praise. Since the tongues are spoken to God, then should not the interpretation sound like it? You see, in verse 2, in verse 3, Paul sets the rules. When you're speaking in tongues, you are not speaking to men. Therefore, the interpretation should not sound like it's being spoken to men. Since it's spoken to God, the interpretation should also be spoken to God. Am I right? Or am I wrong? Is that what the Bible says? Let's go down and read 1 Corinthians 14. If you would get... I know I'm, I'm, oh, I'm controversial. I know it. But I want to provoke you to the understanding of Scripture because I am sure we're short-circuiting ourselves because you talk about other churches have traditions. I want to tell you, you Pentecostal people, create your own traditions. 
They're in violation of the Word of God and you don't even know it. And one of the traditions is getting a message from God in tongues and interpretation. According to 1 Corinthians 14, it's prophecy that does that, not tongues and interpretation. What it is is inexperience and lack of instruction in the things of the Spirit that has caused a tradition to be formed where God gives us a message through tongues and interpretation. No, no, no. Paul said that's prophecy. He says in verse 2, tongues does not do that. Mm. Now you're all going to be quiet tomorrow. I mean, no one's going to dare say anything. Right? <laughs> <coughs> Hallelujah. Oh, come on now. You see, if you just read with me, if, if you go to chapter 14, verse 13, he says, Wherefore let him that speaks an unknown tongue pray that he may interpret, give the meaning of it. For if I pray in an unknown tongue, well, what are you doing when you're speaking in tongues? You are praying, but my understanding is unfruitful. What is it then? I will pray with the Spirit. So when you're speaking in tongues, what are you doing? A message from God or praying to God? Praying. But I also pray with the other thing. I will sing with the Spirit. So when you're speaking in tongues, what are you doing? Worship. Sing with the understanding. Verse 16. Or else, when you are blessing with the Spirit, when you speak in tongues, you are blessing. When you bless with the Spirit, how shall he that occupies the room of the unlearned? Now that just means those who don't understand your tongues. You're speaking Swahili. I don't happen to understand Swahili, so I don't know what you're saying. So I'm listening to you speak in Swahili, and you're speaking in tongues. How can I say amen at your... Your what? Oh, so when you're speaking in tongues, you are giving thanks. How can I say amen if I don't understand what you're saying? So you are giving thanks well, but I'm not edified. So, in other words, the interpretation of tongues should sound like prayer, praise, worship, blessing, or thanksgiving. It's not a prophecy. Hallelujah. (laughs) And you think I'm wrong? Keep reading. Verse 28. Verse 28. Come on, Pentecostals, have we got blinders on? On our eyes. You can't read your Bible because you're so traditional. You can't see what's there. Even Pentecostal traditions. In verse 28, well, verse 27, If any man speaks in an unknown tongue, let it be by two, or at the most by three, and that by course, and let one interpret. But if there's no interpreter, let him keep silence in the church, let him speak to self and to... Oh, so who are you speaking to when you're speaking in tongues, and what, what? Oh, you're speaking to God. So the interpretation should sound like you're speaking to God. No, I've never seen that. I have plenty of times. You see, your limit, your experience is so narrow. Plenty of times I have seen it. I've seen it in Canada. I've seen it here in Northern Ireland, where someone moves in tongues, and then interpretation is worship. The interpretation is prayer. The interpretation is thanksgiving. Since the tongues are spoken towards God, then the interpretation 
should be spoken towards God. And so, you're not speaking to me when you speak in tongues. You're speaking to God. And when the interpretation is given, it's for my benefit. So I can say, Amen, at your giving of thanks. But you're not talking to me. You're talking to God. And I have seen beautiful expressions of interpretation that have come out as prayer, praise, worship, and thanksgiving. And it lifts because the person wants to thank God, but they don't know how to do it. And and they go for it. And then somebody gives an interpretation and they are able to express in English what I couldn't do. And it lifts the entire congregation. I've seen it. Was the wrong pastor, excuse me, the interpretation edifies the body? Is that wrong then? It edifies the body. That's the purpose of it, is to edify the body. But it would be wrong for me just to stand up in my exuberance to, to give this thing in tongues, even if it's worship. If it doesn't help you, I'm out of order. I'm out of order. See, but you see, Pentecostal tradition here... Oh no, I've got to stop. I know I do. Pentecostal tradition is because we haven't been trained or schooled or taught in the things of the Spirit, since most expressions of the Holy Spirit have been limited to tongues and and prophecy and some interpretation never gets beyond that then basically often what happens is this is that we're in a service and somebody has the presence of the Holy Spirit and the old Pentecostal mindset immediately goes tongues every time I feel the Spirit tongues I would say hold back the tongues seek God and maybe you'll prophesy instead maybe you'll have a word of wisdom instead Maybe there will be a word of knowledge. But because you've never been trained in how to respond to the moving of the Holy Spirit, we just go off in tongues. Now, you can speak in tongues anytime you want to. I can do it right here, right now for you, if you want me to. I don't need inspiration from on high to do it. It's out of my control. And a lot of people, when they sense the Spirit of God, just let go with their tongue. They don't need to. I would say, why don't you learn to prophesy instead? And often what happens is somebody does have a word of prophecy, but they just don't give it until there's the tongues. I want some confirmation that God wants me to speak. And so they wait for someone to speak in tongues before they prophesy. I would say with some training, why don't you just go ahead and prophesy without having someone to speak in tongues in front of you. (sighs) You see, I have a burden. And I have to stop. We'll have to pick this up in another day. But I have a burden that we become Pentecostal people in experience. I thought you might say amen. Please help me out. We become Pentecostal people by experience. But then after our initial experiences, we press into the things of the Spirit, learn to walk in the Spirit, learn the flow of the Holy Spirit, learn to cooperate with the moving of the Holy Spirit, learn the expression of these gifts of the Spirit, and bring the entire diversity of the Holy Spirit into the church. The entire diversity of the Holy Spirit into the church. That's my burden. It's my passion. I don't know if I told you or not, but I am Pentecostal. 
Hallelujah. Hallelujah.